the harshest of operating conditions. Large-scale investment, planning, and commitment places the offshore sector in a league all on its own, where the stories of people aren't found anywhere else. From safety to operations to new technology, we look to break down this often mystified industry and shed light into the unknown. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast with your host, Andy Lash. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast, where we are making waves in the oil and gas industry. Today, we've got a very interesting guest. We've got Stuart McGregor from Merland ERD. Stuart, how are you doing today? Yeah, very well, Andy. Thanks very much for inviting me on. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm looking forward to learning about what you've got going on and learning about Merlin ERD. What's Merlin ERD, the ERD stand for? Well, the ERD stands for Extended Reach Drilling. And the Merlin part, it's got nothing to do with the old English wizard. It's in relation to the founder's enthusiasm for flying. So he actually built himself a Spitfire. And if you've got any aviation buffs listening, then they'll, they'll probably know that the name of the engine for the Spitfire is the Merlin engine. So that's the name of the company. Nice. That's cool. Where are you at today, Stuart, while we're talking? Andy, I am in Sunny Creef in central Scotland. So we're about an hour from Edinburgh, an hour from Glasgow, an hour and a half from Aberdeen, if folks know that. We've got blue skies and probably 15 degrees centigrade. So I have no idea what that is in Fahrenheit. I don't either, but that's okay. We'll call it 70. (laughs) Sounds like a nice day. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, it's not bad. Awesome. Well, that's a part of the world. I get it. I've had a lot of guests already on the show from there, really Aberdeen. And part of the world I've always wanted to get out to and check it out. So hopefully someday I'll, I'll make it out there. I'd love to. Well, if you ever watch the um, the TV show Outlander, I don't know if you've ever seen that thing. Um, I've seen parts of it, yeah. Yeah, well, the area around us is where they film all that stuff. So a lot of filming locations in, in the vicinity of the town where I live. It's a little place called Creef, right on the edge of the highlands. There's some, still some snow on the hills that I can see from the upstairs of my house. But yeah, we're kind of in rural Scotland now, so we've been kind of protected from the worst excesses of COVID-19 and the shopping frenzy and all that kind of stuff that's going on. That's good. That's good. Lucky for you on that one, for sure. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Before we get too far into it, I just want to remind all of our guests, of course, first and foremost, this show is sponsored by Tidewater. Tidewater owns and operates the largest fleet of offshore support vessels in the industry. With over 60 years of experience supporting offshore energy exploration and production activities worldwide. If you're interested in support for your maritime operations, you can learn more about Tidewater through their website at www.tdw.com. I also am always looking for feedback on the show. If you like the show, if you have a thought, comment, review, good or bad, please go to wherever you consume this media, leave those comments, leave those reviews, and that'll not only help us improve the show going forward, but it'll also help get the show out to many more listeners. So... Awesome. Awesome. Stuart, we know where you're at today, which is nice. We got this nice web connection where we can talk. But how about a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got to where you are in the industry? Well, that's an interesting one, Andy. Well, I think so anyway. So listen, I've been in the business 22 years. I joined in 1998 at the start of a downturn as well, if I remember correctly. So it's a feature of anyone with a long career in the oil and gas business or surviving multiple downturns. So yeah, 98, I left university, Harriet Watt in Edinburgh, and I joined BJ Services. So I did some fracking and cementing for four years. Got a job as a drilling engineer in 2002, moved down to Australia to work for a little project management organization there. 
was in Australia from 2002 to 2012, lived in Perth and Melbourne, sort of split, split the time. Both kids were born down there. Career perspective, I started off as a drilling engineer, became a senior drilling engineer, and became engineering manager, drilling superintendent, working really for operators drilling wells with semi-subs and jack-ups, predominantly you know, platform development stuff or actual development drilling. So did that. 2012, decided to move back to Europe, went to work for a company in Austria, did some global well engineering stuff there, looking after, or as part of a team who was looking after their assets from Norway to New Zealand. Spent three years there or two years there, left Austria in 2014 to move to Geneva. Then I was a drilling manager for an independent European operator, drilling lots of wells onshore and offshore. And then 2017, I decided to join Merlin ERD and became, well, I started off as a senior drilling engineer for Merlin. And then they decided to give me the the job of business development. And uh, hence, here I am. Awesome. Yeah, that is a very interesting background. I mean, it's very common for anybody in the oil and gas sector to travel the world for the job but you've done a lot of it what was your favorite your favorite you know location or, or that is for the tour? almost impossible to answer andy uh, you, you know <laughs> i often say that you know places is only as good as the people you're there with you know so you could be stuck out in you know in the middle of absolutely nowhere and you know in a country and as long as you've got good folks surrounding you then then you can have fun but i think Culturally, we did a job in Thailand, so we drilled some exploration wells in, in the Gulf of Thailand back in 2005, and that was fantastic. Thai culture is amazing. Thai people are brilliant. We'd go back there in a heartbeat. Then we lived in Melbourne for a couple of years, and both, well, my son was born there with a great group of friends. The work was really interesting. And then we moved to Perth, and that's paradise, but you know, it's just a little bit far away from home. So I don't know, Andy, absolutely impossible question to answer. But I, all I know is I've been really, really lucky with the places I've ended up yeah. and, the, and the people I've met along the way. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's great. I mean, that's, see, I've traveled all over the U.S. So from, for oil and gas. I've been over most of the country. I've gotten into Canada. I mean, I've been all over. So I get that question a lot and feel much the same. Yeah, it, it certainly depends on and comes down to who you're there with and the people and the culture around you. And so totally. Absolutely. Agree. Touched on it earlier, but, you know, as part of the name states, Merlin ERD, Extended Reach Drilling, what really falls into that? What is extended reach drilling when it comes to the industry? So, I mean, the, the classic definition of extended reach is, is having a step out over TVD ratio of, of two to one. Okay, so if I drill down a thousand feet, but drill laterally 2000 feet, then that's a two to one ratio. So, you know, that, that's the kind of accepted industry def, standard definition, if you like, if there is one. But, you know, that in itself these days is, you know, not such a big, not really such a big deal anymore. You know, the extended reach drilling in my mind is a well with a big, long 17 and a half inch hole section and a, and a long 12 and a quarter inch hole section at high angle. We know when you're, you're stepping out, uh, you know, much further distances, potentially a lot shallower or potentially a lot deeper. So to me, the, the whole extended reach thing now is, is about the nature of the challenge rather than a specific, I'm not sure what the word is, definition, you know, standard definition. You know, particularly if you think about what's happening in US land, you know, there's there's people drilling ERD wells, you know, successfully every day. And the performance that you see on those types of operations is, you know, is a bit different from, you know, typically what you're going to be shooting for on a big sort of offshore or platform development or, you know, offshore drilling campaign. So I think the standard definition is, 
is pretty light in comparison to where the where the real challenges are you know okay i guess more so merlin at its core or just kind of the name is you're looking for specialized jobs maybe maybe not just necessarily extended reach but but you guys are coming into the industry really to support those difficult out of the ordinary challenging jobs that the yeah. industry faces yeah yeah day. absolutely so you know we do anything from so, you know, if I think ERD, I'm thinking 17 and a half inch holes at 70 degrees drilled to 22,000 feet or, you know, 40,000 foot wells in total, total length. We've done some really interesting vertical wells, one in Central Europe in a really complex geomechanical environment. We just finished one in deep water offshore Japan for, that was looking at the interface between two tectonic plates. And, and trying to use that data to improve earthquake prediction. So we're quite lucky, actually. We often get asked or in, invited to come along and take a look at things that are, you know, up there on the difficulty scale for various reasons. But yeah, you're yeah, right. It I, goes beyond like the typical, you know, extended reach definition, if you like. Yeah, it's got to keep the got to keep the job interesting. I'm sure you got a lot of new challenges every day. Not just the that never gets boring or mundane, I guess. No, you're spot on, you know, so we could be talking to someone in New Zealand and the next thing you're you're thinking about, well, okay, well, what's happening in Alaska or India or South America or Argentina? You know, so it, their work's pretty varied and, you know, we work with a diverse range of operators from the super majors through to, you know, mom and pop operations and everyone's got slightly a slightly different take on the, the business, a slightly different take on, on what they're, they're trying to get out of, you know, a particular piece of work that we're involved in. So, you know, no, no day's the same and all clients are different and all the works, although we're, we're still turning to the right and, and moving the drill string up and down, you know, everything's, there's always a, a different technical slant or different technical focus. Yeah. With all those jobs, I mean, just diversity of the staff that are doing the jobs, the different companies around the world that are doing the jobs, you know, I mean, all the different pieces of the puzzle, there's got to be specialized jobs and, and you know, systems or tools that have to come in to support those you know, overly challenging jobs. I mean, what are some of those parts of the business? So we think, you know, if you think about you know, the sort of classic extended reach enabler, the rotary steerable system. So that's that's probably been the, the biggest game changer, if you like, in the industry in, I guess, the last sort of 20, 25 years, I suspect. Now, I remember as a young, as a junior engineer, we used to have to hire a boat to pick the rotary steerable tools up and that was it got its own transport its own taxi to and from the rig you know i I think you know the situation's changed a little bit in terms of you know the cost of these systems but you know what they what they basically facilitate what they allow you know operators to do probably not say impossible but be extremely difficult if you were you know falling back to motors and these sorts of things so really the the big game changer is the advent of rotary steerable systems. And, you know, there's, there's been 20 years of continuous development going on with these tools. So, you know, that's, I think that's the sort of specialist, you know, the, the specialist big and shiny thing that we need to talk about. And then obviously there's a whole load of systems, backups and processes that go along with the, the facilitation and the use of these things. So, you know, you've got a very effective drilling, drilling tool or drilling system that can allow you to, you know, to step out further than you thought possible. But there's obviously a load of risks and challenges that are associated with that in the background. Yeah. And it also has to come down to the people that are operating that system, right? I mean, it's not going to, it's not going to drill itself, of course. So you've got to have the staff trained well in the right focus and equipped just as much as, as that specialized system, right? 
Yeah, so it, it's funny. So, you know, in the advent of uh, the rotary steerable tools in particular, when I'm out running training courses, we discuss, we describe a rotary steerable system as the ideal stuck pipe tool. You know, it's, they're so flexible, they're so useful that it's really, really easy to dig yourself into a problem because, you know, they're basically capable of, of doing whatever you throw at them. So if you think about it in system terms, it becomes very much of, okay, well, the tool can do this, but we need to make sure that the system that follows that up is capable of, you know, managing the fallout of that. So when I say system, what I mean is the, you know, the ability of the, the circulating system and the rig to get a drilled cutting back from the bit back to surface. So you can generate drill cuttings very quickly and very efficiently with a rotary steerable system, but you need that system to be able to get those cuttings out of the hole. And that system is very, you know, invariably run by, you know, human beings. And that's really where the personnel competency thing comes into it. It's we've got, we've got, a system, we've got some tools on the end that can do great things, but we need the, the people that are operating the rig, you know, the driller, the directional driller, the mud engineer, the mud loggers to be on top of the business so we can actually, you know, get an efficient and effective outcome from what we're doing. So Stuart, the training aspect, like you just mentioned, is, is really a big part of what Merlin offers the industry, right? That's a big part of your business. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. You know, the, the training pieces, you know, is, is pretty interesting. You know, so if you think about it, the way that we kind of structure it is there's, there's three aspects, really. There's the engineering, the upfront engineering part, there's a training part, and then there's a bit of, you know, site support. So the, the training piece really fits in between the engineering and the you know, operational support in as much as, you know, if you're looking at a complex well, an extended reach well, then you know, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to have to do things in a slightly different way from the way that it's been done previously. So, you know, what the engineering phase is, is designed to, you know, allow the operator you know, to, to figure out what's different about their extended reach or their complex wells compared to what they're what they used to be they're used to doing. So once you figure out what's different, invariably has an impact on what you need to do operationally. You know, whether that's you know if you're taking connections in, in a slightly different way, or you're circulating at TD over a, in a slightly different way, or cleaning the hole up in a slightly different way. Let's call it that. So there's there's a whole load of things that need to be done differently when you're talking about complex wells. And the last thing you want as an operator is to have spent all your time and effort doing the engineering stuff to come to the point where you're actually going to implement a site, you know, for whatever reason, you know, the plan doesn't go according to the program that you've, you've spent all that time and effort and energy writing. So, you know, how we, how we deal with that is to make sure that, you know, everyone who's going to be involved from the engineering through, team through to the rig team is aware of the reasons for those changes. So invariably, what that means is, is getting everyone at the same level. You know, so we take a very much a back-to-basics approach. So we're, in the training, we're covering you know, the, where does torque and drag come from? You know, how do hydraulic, you know, how do, where do the hydraulic loads come from? We talk about you know, the basics of drilling fluids, of tripping and back reaming and connection practices. Why are, you know, why are these important and why is it important for us to do in the way that they're programmed to do? Because like I said, the last thing you want is to come to operationally, operational implementation and you, you find out that you know, someone hasn't done something in a, in a way that's been you know, specifically designed. So you know, I always like to think of an extended reach well in the same way as an HPHT well. And what, by that, what I mean is that in HPHT, there's an extreme focus on detail in the planning and in the operations, right? Because if you're playing with a 15,000 PSI reservoir at 
you know, 350 degrees, you've got to be extremely careful with what you're doing to the point where, you know, back in the old days when I was cementing, we used to weigh barrels of retarder so we would know exactly how much chemical we were adding to the batch tank when we were going to do an HPHT cement job rather than just relying on the, the cementer or the cementer's helper to sort of to eyeball at the cement unit. So it's that sort of, you know, extreme level of detail, extreme focus that you need to apply when you're in a complex well environment in order to sort of preserve the value that you're that you're shooting for in that particular development. And that's really where the training comes in. So you get everyone on board with the basics, get everyone at the same level, and then it's an explanation as to why things need to be done the way that you're that you're doing it. And we find that you know people are, are really engaged with the process. You know, everybody most people don't know as much as they think they know, I think is probably the, the safest way to put it. So, you know, typically we do a little test before and after just to give guys, you know, the feeling that they've actually learned something or, or some tangible evidence that they've learned something. And we typically see around about 40, 40% correct answers in the, in the pre-test and then, you know, roughly 80 to 90 post-test. So you can you can really see that, you know, there's People don't know as much as they think they do, and there's there's quite a lot required to get everyone up to the same level, and that that's across the board, you know, from from operators, drilling personnel, through to directional drillers, mud engineers, and so on. Yeah, that was kind of you touched on it there, but that was one of the the questions that was kind of running through my mind was, you know, the oil and gas hands are you know some tough cookies, you know, there's some tough characters, and they've got a lot of drive and a lot of you know, it's this, they're stubborn, right? A lot of times they're stubborn. They think they know what they've got. They think they know what they're doing. And I could see that retraining some maybe experienced hands doesn't always go over so well, right? I mean, but but you said they tend to take to it well, is what you're... Yeah, listen, I mean, um, you know, everybody, you know, everyone's smart enough to know, to know that they don't know everything. And the, you know, half of the benefit of being a training course is to sit around with, with other guys with you know more experience than you hopefully and listen to their war stories and all the things that they've done wrong or things that they've done and they shouldn't have done and vowed never ever to do again and that's really what adds the color and the flavor to the training so it's it's one thing to be presenting material on torque and drag and hydraulics but it's quite another to get people engaged with the the war stories or with material that's directly relevant to their day-to-day job you know, so we often get, you know, some really, really good discussions about back reaming or pumping sweeps or, you know, as you rightly point out, you know, the folks involved in the oil and gas business, they've been everywhere, done everything and seen everything and everyone's got an opinion, yeah. you know, and that's brilliant. That's exactly the sort of people that, that add color and flavor to the training course and, you know, really helps to improve the, the training outcomes for everyone, really. But most, most folk are, are receptive to it. And, you know, if you're using real life examples, as we do when we're on our training courses, you know, things that we've seen in the field, if you can, if you can relate your, the material to actually this is what you might see or, or you can pitch it in a way to say, well, okay, now, now that we've explained this, what do you think you should do differently? You know, that stuff's always really powerful. And, you know, I think people like to also like to have, you know, examples from maybe outside of their the geographical area or, you know, of their, you know, slightly out of their comfort zone is not the right word, but slightly out of their area of expertise as well. You know, I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, drilling, we still turn to the right. We still pump through the middle and lift, drip in and out. Right. So it's never that complex. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's all good. So how do these training classes with Merlin work? I mean, kind of just kind of looking at what you guys do overall with the engineering support, the training, the operational support. Are these classes or training 
Is it like per well, or are you getting people from different wells all over the world into this one one kind of centralized class? It's a, each it, time you offer it. Or? No, it's a, you know flexibility is is king here, Andy. So okay. what we try and do is tailor it to you know whatever the industry or whatever the customer is looking for. So you know we do specific training courses for clients who are about to start drilling, you know, a campaign, let's say, or we also do, you know, what we call open seat training, where anyone who wants to learn, you know, how to drill the world's most complex oil and gas wells can come and sit and, you know, listen to us and, and be amongst their peers and, and hear their stories too. So really we do everything. And, and you know, in the, in the current situation, yeah, a big a big thing for us is going to be our remote training offering as well. So we, we made some inroads with that over the last couple of years, but that's really ramped up a notch you know, in terms of our ability to deliver and how we're going to deliver it in an interactive way. So that's that's something that we're pushing pretty hard on at the moment. Yeah, that's certainly going to get you guys set up for success, I would think. It's, it's going to be many, many different benefits from something like that, regardless of if it's during the kind of the shelter in place and isolation kind of period we're in right now as the, as the world, or just from an efficiency standpoint. I mean, just cost controls of being able to do remote training. I'm sure that's going to be helpful. Yeah, no, absolutely. I sat in 2018, I was in the headquarters of a super major oil company talking to their global head of training. And, you know, they had some pretty ambitious vision lined up for, you know, for the way that they train their engineers. And, you know, one of the key concepts was about nuggetization of learning outcomes. So their view was that, you know, if a drilling engineer is designing an extended reach well, then, you know, they want a learning resource that's there for them that they can dip into and out of, you know, over the course of a, a working day or a week or, or the campaign, you know. So if they need to think about DHA design, then there's some clearly defined learning outcomes that they can nip into and spend maybe 10 or 15 minutes, you know, understanding the theory, maybe a little bit of practical work associated with that. And then, you know, they, once they've covered that piece of information up, they're back onto, you know, BHAs for the well that they're working on. So, you know, that's, that's a big focus for us is trying to facilitate that man's dream. Yeah, very cool, very cool. With all the training you guys are doing, I mean, you're talking to these people day in and day out. Where are the most common gaps with you know operators and crews today when they come in? It's an interesting question. So, where do the gaps lie? Well, you know, I think I've been surprised, and I, you know, I put my hand up and say, you know, I'm, I'm the same. Everyone's you know technical skills need you know a bit of refreshing, and you know, in the same way as a, as an offshore drilling engineer, drilling supervisor, or superintendent, you do your well control every couple of years. You know, most folks when they're when they're planning wells, you know, they might spend a bit of time doing some torque drag and hydraulics, and they might do some BHA design work, or they might look at the mud system. But really, what we see is that you know the, the level of knowledge you know, probably isn't where, you know, as individuals, we would like it to be across the board. So, you know, it's really helpful to get everyone back up to, you know, back up to sort of a minimum standard. So, you know, the likes of, you know, why is it important to take pick up and slack off weights and, you know, high angle wells, you know, people might not, if they haven't been exposed to it throughout their career, then, or through a specific program or event or activity, they might not really be, you know, aware as to, as to why it's worth doing that and, and why it's worth spending the time and effort and ultimately money to take pickups and lack offs on a on a connection so you know you, you sometimes have to readjust the fundamental understanding of people and the other the other big one as well is you know like i mentioned earlier on is you know how do you get a piece of rock from the bit which might be you know six or seven miles to two or three thousand feet north from your surface location and, you know, there's a long horizontal section, there's a, there's a build, you might be sitting at 60 or 70 degrees, 
and that builds back to vertically. You know, so how do we explain to people and to get them to understand, you know, how a, how a rock moves through those individual conduits and what what do the physical forces that that, that drilled cutting is subject to lead to downhole? So, you know, if you're thinking about tripping through the avalanche zone, you know, why is it important to yeah, maybe you spend a bit of extra time circulating on a connection. So if you see the if you see the information in front of you, if you see with a, a small demo, if you see the the drilled cuttings start to avalanche back down on top of the BHA when you stop the pumps, then it becomes very clear as to why you might have to do something different. So really, there's you know from a rig crew, sort of rig position standpoint, it's getting everyone back up to that sort of minimum minimum level, and then from an operator standpoint. You know, we've got systems and processes that are designed to facilitate, you know, properly risk well designs. And often, you know, you could get to a position where the well design that you actually end up drilling for various reasons doesn't meet the criteria of, of least risk cost, for example. So, you know, things can get built into a well design through past experience, past history, and not necessarily encapsulate, you know, how the industry would do under conditions of best practice. Yeah, I mean... I think this is is one of those risk normalization kind of categories, right? Where if they if they've been drilling a well a certain way for for so long and it just hasn't had an issue, well that that just becomes how they do it, right? And and you guys are kind of really working to bring bring back to basics, bring back to those core theories and engineering practices and and kind of really mitigate those risks that could be lying dormant almost right in, in some of these habits or, or general practices that that people fall into yeah yeah an interesting example of that is is converse if you flip that on its head is you know organizations getting something in their mind that they can't they can't physically do a specific activity so you know we did a work for a client a bit of work for a client and the engineering team were sure that this well design could be drilled and could be delivered and if you look at where it is on the nose plot, so which is the industry envelope, if you like, then you know there's there's lots of wells surrounding it, so there are lots of you know offset data points to look at. But they, that operator's management team had it in their minds that this simply couldn't be done because you know 20 years ago there was a big train wreck. Now the interesting thing was that the people that were in that operations group, none of them were involved in that train wreck 20 years ago. But that that sort of organizational perception had persisted, and it was really stopping stopping management from making some decisions about how to how to move the field forward and actually leading them down some you know some non-optimum development strategies if you like so you know it's one thing to think about you okay, lift you know manipulating the drill string up and down but something else when you're when you're talking about billions of dollars of value associated with a particular hydrocarbon accumulation and you know, ultimately yeah. at the end of the day operators are about harvesting that value and you know you get that you get the maximum value from from doing the engineering right and making sure that the people involved in the job, you know, make good decisions when the wheels fall off. And then during your operational implementation phase, you're, you're focusing on on the performance, you know. So can I drill this faster? Do I have to drill slower? Can I trip faster? Do I need to trip more slowly? So it's really having that holistic view and, and seeing it from, from top to bottom. Where, in addition to like the training we've already talked about, where does Merlin you know, help on like, say the, I think we've touched on the engineering support mm. and the operational support. How does that look for you guys? So, I mean, en- the engineering is quite interesting. So, you know, we were talking earlier on about, we get some cool, we get some cool jobs to play with. So that's really oftentimes it comes in through the engineering front end. So, you know, the, the tectonic plate one was, it was an engineering job and that was, you know, looking at some events that had gone on previously 
and allowing us to form a view on on what we could do in the future. You know, we do things, you know, jobs like operator wants to drill an ERD well from a platform, but they've got, you know, a jack up with X capability or capacity. So can we physically drill this well with this rig? If the answer is yes, good. If not, then what do we need to do to fix it? So our company mantra is, you know, don't tell me what, you know, don't tell me that it's not going to work. Tell me what it's going to do to, or what we need to do to fix it. So, you know, we might be in a situation like that. So we might have to suggest modifications to the, you know, the standpipe pressure or the shaker capacity or, you know, drill string or, you know, something along those lines. Equally, we might get, we might get asked to, to come and look at a situation where a BHA has been lost, for example. You know, someone's drilled a side track or a whole section, you know, BHA's got lost for various reasons. And then, you know, they've decided to get someone else to come and have a look and see if there's any, you know, if we can come up with a view as to as to what went wrong and then, you know, I guess more importantly, how to address it in future. Awesome. That's very interesting stuff. I'm sure you guys are tackling every day and helping everybody get through. I love my day job. As, you know, as a driller, I've been lucky 20 odd years in operations and it's never the same thing twice. You never know what's going to happen when you wait, come into the office first thing. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. That makes life interesting. It makes you want to get out and see what see what's going to happen today you know yeah exactly exactly so with the current rate environment and margins like they are how can an operator find success through these environments and maybe what what is merlin or, or how you guys help look at some of different tactics to maybe increase efficiency increase the productivity with what they have to work with so I need to come clean to your listeners, Andy. You know, in the in the list of questions that you sent me beforehand to allow me to prepare, I was you know the phrase "right first time" always comes to mind, but it, it's such a it's such an industry cliche, isn't it? That you know we always got to get it right first time. You got to get it right first time in a low oil price environment. You got to get it right first time in a high oil price environment because your service costs are invariably high. You know, for us, it's it's about helping people get it right first time. That's if you're going to do something and, you know, everyone knows that operators' CapEx budgets have been slashed, you know, you just have to open the newspaper or LinkedIn or whatever. And, you know, you see Operator X has just cut half a billion dollars out of their anticipated drilling spend for 2020. You know, so it's just it's getting the biggest bang for the buck, right? It's, it's maximizing the value that's going to come out of any, you know, individual hydrocarbon pool or any project that's being defined. And the way you get that is is clear definition of, you know, what, what the project entails from a drilling perspective, it's what are the objectives that this well is designed to achieve. And then how do we make sure that we, those objectives are basically achieved in as efficient manner as humanly possible. And that's, that's our, our mantra. That's, that's where we come in. You know, that's, that's what we do. Yeah. I had a boss that used to always tell me that there's never time to do it right, but there's always time to do it over. <laughs> yeah yeah it reminds me of that the other thing i was thinking about as well was the old reddit air mantra you know where he's apparently he he once quit you know if you think it's expensive to hire a professional you should see what it costs when you hire an amateur and, yeah uh, yeah absolutely but you know everyone's squeezed everyone has the same you know the same concerns it's you know it's it's difficult to justify x y and z you know particularly if it's if your services are seen as being a little bit off of the critical path you know, but you know, we've got we've got buckets of data that, that shows that, you know, when, when an organization like Maryland gets involved, then things just seem to move a little bit more smoothly. I'm sure they do. I mean, we've talked about a lot. I mean, you know, we talked about a return to basics, right? Looking at those core functions that might become overly commonplace, 
and become, you know, sedentary and just not really optimized and kind of getting back to those basics and then really looking at proper engineering techniques, really being detail focused. I mean, you guys are touching a lot of different stuff for, you know, people in the industry today. So, I mean, you know, that's, it's the same, you know, I, I guess, you know, whatever you do in the upstream space, whether you're building a pipeline or drilling a well or commissioning a facility, you know, the, the ones, the, those, those projects that are all really successful, at least in my experience, you know, they, they start with very clear project definition and then it moves into, you know, an extremely well-managed project execution and that those, you know, well-managed executed projects, you're invariably extremely safe. You know, the people that are involved with them understand the risks and they know where they're, you know, they're, you know how those risks are controlled. When you put together, you know, the foundation of, of engineering, a competent and educated workforce, you know, with, with the right operational implementation strategy. I mean, that's, that's how you, you achieve success, right? That's, it's not rocket science or, you know, it's well understood industry practice. Absolutely. No, I think that's well said. Stuart, is there any, any parts of details in the industry that you kind of wish you had known earlier on or, or maybe myths that you combat with day in, day out? I think, so the biggest one that we find, so we did a few years ago, we looked at all the problem reviews that we'd done as an organization and we came up with a sort of slightly hand-waving conclusion that around about 80% of so-called wellbore stability issues are self-inflicted. You know, so if you're drilling a well and you have problems tripping and you're seeing cavings coming back across the shakers, it's, oh, we're having a wellbore stability issue. Well, yeah, you may well be, but you, there's a pretty good chance that you probably caused that yourself through, you know, inadequate drilling practices. So we often see, you know, instances of, of wellbore stability that when you or wellbore stability problems that when you go back and look at what was going on with fresh eyes if you like and with this sort of with your erd hat on your erd engineering hat then you go yeah well no surprise that this actually occurred because you were doing x y and z and and so on so we often we often um, we like to have a bit of a joke about wellbore stability issues and then the other one other myths maybe around about you know sweeps and and back reaming, you know, so back reaming is, for, I guess, for those that don't know, is basically the process of drilling backwards. And sometimes you have to do that to get out of a hole. So, you know, when we're drilling, we've got to get to where we're going, you know, as fast as we can. But also, you know, oftentimes the challenge becomes getting everything that needs to get out of the hole physically out of it. And one of the things we can do is to start to turn the drill string and, and, and pull out of hole. And that process is called back reaming and it introduces, you know, certain elements of risk. There's a whole load of myth and voodoo about back reaming how you know how should you do it when should you stop how should you start you know how fast should you go and then you know there's very rarely you know one size fits all answer for that these sorts of questions but one of actually one of the interesting parts of the course is getting everyone's horror stories more stories and views on you know when when should you back cream when should you not back cream and and so on so those are the those are the kind of the things that obviously cause a bit of contention when we discuss them in various forums no, I could see that. And it makes a lot of sense on a lot. I mean, they're all different things. I mean, you know, it's specific engineering practices. I mean, everybody's going to have their secret sauce, of course, on on what they think think is going to get the job done. And there is some secret sauce sometimes, right? There is for some, sure, some for sure. Special yeah, yeah, practices yeah. and things. Yeah, yeah, there is. Well, obviously not at liberty to divulge those, but, yeah, <laughs> you know, I think that the key thing is that, that drilling's a system and the, the system's approach works really well. So, you know, going back to the example of the rotary steerable system, right? So you've got, 
you know, a special sauce drill bit on the end with a special sauce rotary steerable tool with special sauce stabilizers and special sauce drilling fluids, right? So you've got all these things rolled in together. But ultimately, it's, you know, if one part of that system breaks down and, and the key part of that system is getting to cut, is operating in a way that allows you to clean the hole effectively. So if, if one aspect or one item of that system breaks down, then you're, you're in for a world of hurt. So, you know, that's really the benefit, I think. And it, you can extrapolate that even further, a third time lucky on that one, to think about the system from well design all the way through to the end, you know. So if you don't get the well architecture right, then it doesn't matter what tools you put in the hole because you've, you've got a fundamental design flaw in the well that's not been designed to account for the mitigation of some particular downhole risk. And, you know, these sorts of issues become very difficult to fix when the rig's on location if you haven't got that piece right. So the systems approach kind of lies across the entire spectrum. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Well, we have touched on a lot. I think that anybody listening, whether they are able to come work with Merlin and you guys or or not, I think we've got a clear message that going back to basics, looking at those core processes, really keeping a vigilant eye on what each part of the system is doing can really help lead to success. So hopefully they can take this, gives them some good thoughts to look at their own operations and maybe make some tweaks for the better. And, And if they can come work with you guys over at Merlin ERD, all the better, right? Absolutely. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's, we always talk about value, you know, so so we're drilling engineers, but we like to think of ourselves as value engineers. And the value is, you know, if I've got a pool of hydrocarbons that's worth a billion dollars, you know, I need to set myself up with a, a well that gives me the least risk cost of, of developing that. And then into the trading part to get everyone up to speed so that when we start on operations, then, you know, we don't erode that that maximum value through, you know, poor judgments or, you know, any of the other countless things that can go wrong at the well site. So that's that's how we think. It's, it's all about value for the client at the end of the day. Awesome. Awesome. Stuart, I really appreciate your time. Very interesting discussion. Sorry for a few technical issues throughout the, throughout the interview, but I really enjoyed talking with you. I, I thank you again. Thanks, Andy. Likewise, it was great to have a chat with you and hopefully we'll do it again. Absolutely. Everybody listening, thank you for turning in. Hope you enjoyed the show. Again, like the show, leave a review, leave a comment, go check out Merlin ERD. You can get to their website at www.merlinerd.com. We'll also have some information in the show notes and we'll catch you on the next one. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Alex here with the events on deck. So obviously we are in uh, unprecedented times right now and have been unable to carry out our last couple of happy hours that we had scheduled for last month. We have chosen to delay them and we'll continue to update you on when exactly we will be able to have those events again. Obviously, we're following along the recommended guidelines of the CDC and the World Health Organization. So we're really looking forward to seeing you and we're hoping that these events are going to happen sooner rather than later. But for now, stay tuned and we will keep you posted on those dates. Also, just want to say thank you to everyone for continuing to listen to Oil & Gas Global Network. We are fortunate to already have been a virtual company before the coronavirus and all of these issues started plaguing various countries. And we just want to continue bringing you guys the best information and to the best of our ability, keep you informed, especially while everyone is at home or at least most more people than ever before are at home. So 
We just would like to thank you for continuing to tune in and continuing to listen. And we hope that everyone is staying safe and we wish everyone the best. And thanks again. Tune in next week for another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasoffshore.com.